0: <coughs> well, I'll tell you, what the this is a rather high quote, but it's. I, I, I really think what they should have done is made a hole here for Brother Dan to stand right. in. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't bring it out of lock. You didn't bring it at all? You didn't wash your fingers in it or anything. All right. I was at a conference in uh, Garden, Texas, a student before last, where the theme of the conference was the. Carrying the changeless gospel to a changing world. And uh and good conflict. I thought very, very apropos. But the theme of it reminded me of um, some of the tremendous changes that are going on in the world today. And of a story a doctor, friend of mine, a medical doctor, had told me just a week before about um, uh, some of the changes that are going on in the medical field, and he said that. Some of the research groups have gotten together, and they have petitioned the American Medical Association to quit using rats for research. And what they wanted to do was to use lawyers instead. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, when asked the reason, they said, well, there are three basic reasons we feel this has be an improvement. Number one, there's a lot more lawyers in the world than there are rats. And uh, number two, he said sometimes we get emotionally attached to the rats. And of course this couldn't happen to a law <laughs> with a lawyer, you know. <laughs> and number three, uh, there's some things the rat just won't do. <laughs> have to so, so we live in a changing world I, I think maybe they might have a point there. It is a joy, and I appreciate my grandson coming with me. We drove down to Memphis on Sunday evening and uh, spent a little time there with my daughter and my son-in-law, who pastors the church here in Memphis. And he was planning to come with me, was I to come. Found out yesterday evening he couldn't come, no, so my grandson said, Can I go? And I said, Sure. I'm always glad to have him along. He's not a very good driver yet, but he's a mm-hmm. pretty good coach, I'm glad to have him. I want you to open your Bibles this evening, if you will, please, to the book of Matthew, chapter number 27. And we're going to begin to read with verse 29, and Matthew 27, and read down through verse number 36. Yes, let's stand together as we read it, sir. Matthew, chapter number 27. Begin to read the verse 29, and we'll read through verse 36. And when they had planted a crown of thorns, they put it upon his head, and a reed in his hand. And they bowed the knee before him, and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit upon him, and took the reed, and smote him on the head. After that they had mocked him, they took the robe off from him, and put his own raiment on him, and led him away to crucify him. As they came out, they found the man of Cyrene and Simon by name. Him they compelled to bear his cross. And when they were coming to a place called Golgotha, that is to say, the place of the skull, they gave him vinegar to drink mingled with gall. When he had tasted thereof, he would not drink. They crucified him and parted his garments, casting lots, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet. They parted my garments among them, and upon my vesture did they cast lots, and sitting down, they watched him there, and set up over his head an accusation written, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then were there two thieves crucified with him, one on the right hand, the other on the left. They that passed by reviled him, wagging their heads." You may be seated, and let's bow together in prayer. Please. Heavenly Father, as we come tonight to this most sober account that has ever been recorded, anything in history, may we come in reverence and awe and in Lord, may our hearts be humbled tonight. At the same time, Lord, may we be thrilled with the fact that the Lamb was crucified for poor sinners. Let us worship around this glorious truth this evening, Father, in such a way that our hearts would never be quite the same. Father, I pray that if there is one here tonight who is a stranger to your grace, who is outside of the canopy of your saving grace, who has not come to know the Lamb of God as their own personal atonement. May they this evening be brought to this glorious truth. I ask it in Jesus' name and for this sake. Amen. For a text tonight, I want you to reread or look again. Just notice the first part of verse 35. Four words, and they crucified him. The benchmark of history, both looking back and looking forward, is around this event. I understand that the dating actually deals more with the birth of Christ, and yet his very purpose for coming into the world was this event that we have right here. All of Christendom looks to this event. In the book of Hebrews, chapter number 10, the Bible says in the volume of the book, it is written of me. And he's talking about him coming into the world to do the will of God. And verse 10 says, By the which will we are satisfied, by the offering of his body once for all. So everything about Christendom and everything about history, whether the world likes it or not, and whether the world believes it or not, hinges around this particular point and yet it took place almost as it was incidental to everyone right? even the disciples one of the most amazing things that i see in my bible is the casual way in which these words are stated and they crucified me now i don't know too much about that crucifixion you know sometimes religious tradition robs us of a great deal of truth i'm told I don't know that this is true, and I don't even know how to find out. But I have read by some authorities that seem to be logical that he was not crucified upon a cross, very much like what you see in most Christian literature. But the cross probably looks more like those horns that you see above my head. It acts like this. And we talk about the old rusty nails, that were driven through his hands, and of course that will sizes, but the fact of the matter is they were probably not rusty nails because they were probably wooden pegs as big as your thumb. Now, you think about having those pegs driven through your hands, and they took this cross probably and stood it with a brace standing behind it, his legs spread out, nails driven through his feet, nails driven through his hands, The little platform that you see on the cross for him to stand on in Catholic literature is not real. That did not take place. We are looking at one of the most cruel treatments of a human being that could ever be imagined. I don't know what it would feel like to have nails driven through my hands and my feet. I had a pitchfork stuck through my legs one time and uh, went through both legs. And my father turned me over and put his feet on it and reached out and jerked it out. And it was only in there about 10 seconds. But it seemed to me like those times on the pitchfork were bigger around than the handle should have been. And I can imagine what those those uh, pegs in a person's hand would feel like for all of that time. But you know, the suffering of the Lord was not so much physical suffering. I am persuaded That he took upon himself a measure of suffering that no other human being could have even felt upon that cross. The suffering of Christ, however, is not really what we're dealing with tonight. Brother Terrell has done that. But we're going to be dealing with the crucifixion of Christ. This was the greatest atrocity that had ever taken place. And yet it was the most wonderful event that ever took place. Think about that. The greatest atrocity, and yet the most wonderful event. This was the perfect will of God, and yet it was a violation to all that God stood for. Isn't that paradoxical? It breaks the Christian's heart to think of our Savior being persecuted and treated in that fashion, and yet it fills our hearts with joy that He died upon the cross of Calvary. You go to the book of Revelation, chapter number 4, and you find there the word of creation praising Him because of creation. When you come to chapter 5, they're praising Him because of redemption. Brother Carol subject on creation is so very important because you know the word. I mean even the Christian world, will never understand redemption until they understand creation. I mean, you look at the Levitical laws of redemption, and God doesn't even have a right to redeem according to His own law unless He created and is the owner by virtue of creation. But the thing that I want you to see here is that in the process of this, God's will was being done, and yet the men who did this were acting in absolute defiance to all God had ever revealed to them. Right. Now. These and the other paradoxes surrounding this can only be understood if we look at the crucifixion of Christ from differing perspectives. And I know this can be approached from other ways, but I'm going to just come at it tonight from three very simple views. First of all, this event must be viewed in the sense of eternal decree. Now, when we say eternal decree, we simply mean that which God has purposed to bring to pass. There are two ways in which God brings His decrees to pass. Number one, He allows the depravity of mankind to work freely doing what they want to do, up to a certain point. You follow what I'm talking about? They can put thorns on His head. They did witness back, they did made him to a cross, they couldn't break a bone. God did not allow that. Right. God allows humanity to work in that fashion. The other means of God's decree is for God to override depraved humanity and bring to pass that which he purposes. This event must be viewed. In the sense of divine decree, or we will never be able to see the beauty that is in it, we'll see it more like an atrocity or an accident, as the modernistic world today seems to think it is. Now, the triune God decreed, and when I say decreed, I have to say they did it. Listen to me, in eternity past, if there is, that's what it's done. It contradictory terms, eternity past. We use terms like that, no such thing. There's no past in eternity, no present in eternity. Well, there's no future in eternity, really it's all present. And even that word is not accurate in that area. But Revelation chapter 13 and verse 8, as was mentioned earlier tonight, says that He was a lamb slain from the foundation of the Word. Now how was He slain from the foundation of the Word? For He had not yet had a body prepared for Him, and as God He could not die, He had not yet taken on this form, and yet the Bible says He was a lamb slain from the foundation of the Word. That is done in the decree of God. God purposed it. And God purposed it, there is a sense that is a decree of a sense in which it's exactly the same as if God had done it. All of this decree to what was to the eternal glory of and by the triune God. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Hebrews chapter 13 and verse number 20 speaks of the blood of the everlasting covenant. This everlasting covenant was not between God and men, but this covenant was between the persons of the Godhead, the triune God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And God had decreed this from all eternity. In the book of Acts chapter 2 and verse 23 we find one of the most wonderful verses of all the Bible. Him being delivered by the determined counsel and foreknowledge of God ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. Now, we'll make reference to that later. But right here, that it just suffice to say that the Bible said he was delivered by the determinative counsel and foreknowledge of God. Amen. They Amen. could not only laid a hand upon him. They could not arrest him. Remember how when they came to the garden of Gethsemane, or Gethsemane to arrest him? And uh, he said, who are you looking for? And they said, we're looking for Jesus. And he said, I am he, actually. He said, I am they held out backward. He could not have been touched. They could not have been Every slap that fell upon his face was by the hand of God. Every single strike that was laid upon his back was by the hand of the Triumphant God. Every spattering of spittle that came upon his face was by the decree of God. God did it. Those who arrested him those who tried Him, those who condemned Him, those who crucified and sealed the tomb were totally subject to God. They couldn't do one thing except that which God had eternally purposed. One day all creation will stand and they will sing hallelujah for the cross. I want you to open your Bibles for a moment to the book of Romans, chapter number 8. This is a message within itself I'm not going to preach it. But I just want you to look at a few verses there. Chapter number 8, verse 21 in the book of Romans. Because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. Not only they, but ourselves also which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grow within ourselves Waiting for the adoption to witness the redemption of the body. You know, you hear today a lot of talk about limited atonement, and I certainly believe in personal and particular redemption. But I will tell you something, folks when Jesus Christ came upon the cross, when God placed him there, he reconciled all things to God that ever shall be reconciled. Those things which shall be eternally alienated were not reconciled to God, but all Things that ever shall be reconciled. I mean, write down the animals upon the earth and the thorns upon the rose bushes and all the things that are involved in the curse shall somehow be reconciled by nothing more or less than the offering of the blood of the Lamb of Calvary. Amen. Say, so preacher, sure explain that. I can't explain that, but I know it's true from the Bible. I know it's true. So we have to look at this to get the right view of to be able to begin to see the crucifixion of Christ rightly, we have to see it as an act of God. God did it. God did it. And from that standpoint, we can say, "Hallelujah on the cross." We have to turn and admit something else. And that is, it must be viewed as a wicked act. Him being delivered by the determinate counsel and knowledge of God, ye have taken, and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. How is it, how is it that men doing exactly what God had eternally determined can be charged with wickedness? Remember how Stephen infuriated the Jews in Acts chapter 7 and verse number 52 when he said, to whom ye have now been the betrayers and murderers? Speaking, you have been the betrayers and murderers? God said, or the Bible says, him being delivered by the determinant counsel and foreknowledge of God. If that is so, how is it that these people can be the murderers? They carry out that which God in eternal eternity. How is that possible? Well, in order to understand the will of God, you're going to always have to see it in two basic senses. You'll never understand the will of God otherwise. I don't intend to get into a theology lesson, but I want you to get this. Number one, the will of decree. That which God has eternally determined. We use the term uh, predestination. But actually, it's only pre in the sense of man. In the sense of God, it's something or actual. Something that's always done and being done by God. As if there were no such thing as time. But when we look at the, the, the will of God, we have to see it in the sense of decree. He decreed that Christ should be crucified. But we also have to see it in the sense of the will of approbation. Now, what do I mean by the will of approbation? That is that which God approves of as an act within itself. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and all thy might bear false witness. Thou shalt do no murder, etc., etc. Those basic principles that God has laid before men, and God has said this is what your conduct is supposed to be. Now, from the latter view, that is that which God has told man to do, this is history's vilest act. No act has ever taken place in all of history so vile and so wicked as this act right here. You understand that God has never given us the responsibility to carry out His decree. God had decreed that Christ was to die upon the cross and yet no man was responsible to crucify Him. Pilate was not responsible to turn them over to him. Judas was not, oh yes, God had decreed that Judas would be the very one who would betray him. But Judas was not responsible to betray him. Judas was disobeying God in every sense when he did betray him. For he was divine God's revealed will. We are not responsible to see what God has decreed and carry out the decrees of God. We are responsible to see what God has commanded and to carry out the commands of God. And so this crucifixion must be seen as the wickedest act of all time. You see, all of Adam's natural offspring deserve fish. You know that? The Bible said, by one man's transgression, many are disobedience Many were made sinners. Those little babies, those little children come into the world. And I'll tell you, this is a preacher that likes children. I've heard preachers make jokes about it and tease about it and even ridicule baby kissing preachers. I'll tell you something, folks. I've got any use for anybody that doesn't love babies. I just don't, I don't care. I mean, I just don't have any use for them. I really don't. I mean, I love children. I don't care what color they are. Care how hungry they are. I mean, some of them I think ought to have a suit hooked out of them, but I love like children. I always have. And I, but I'm going to tell you something, folks, they're not innocent little children. They're not innocent little children. They come into this world guilty before God. And when we see atrocities like we see uh, in Europe today and where children are being killed in warfare. It is an atrocious thing that's going on. But I want to tell you something. It does not parallel the injustice that took place in Washington. right. Because here we have the only man who was not made a sinner by Adam's transgression. The last Adam who came into the world sinless, impeccable. By yes. impeccable, I mean he could not sin. We have these motties today. Some of them think they are Baptists. Some of them think I should say Than. no. I won't say that. I, I, I don't mean that. But I want to tell you something, folks. The impeccability of Christ is a cardinal doctrine yeah, of the yeah. Bible. Because you see, the fact of the matter is that if Christ could have sinned, then he had to have within him the ability to desire sin. Because sin is always in the heart before it's in the hand. You do not become a sinner by sinning. Did you know that? This is one of the one of the basic mistakes of the world of religion today. The idea that you become a sinner by sinning. You didn't become a sinner by sinning. You sinned because you were a sinner. Amen. You became a sinner by being born to your father Adam. You were a sinner when you were born. You have that in you. That's not your word. And that's why you sin. Right. don't have to teach a baby lie. He's an actual war liar. You don't have to teach him to be selfish, he's naturally selfish. You don't have to teach him to be proud, he's naturally proud. All of those things are within us. But the Lord Jesus Christ did not have that wickedness with him. He went about all of his lifetime doing good, always oh, doing good. And yet, as the scripture said, the recompense for evil, being persecuted, being mistreated. I want you to know this in your Bibles. In Matthew chapter number 8 verses 5 through verse 7. And when Jesus was entered into the parties, there came unto him a centurion beseeching him, and saying, Lord, my servant, my servant lie at home sick of the palsy, grievous, slave, tormented. And Jesus said unto him, I will come and keep thee. Just so casual. And we see these things throughout our Bible, uh, in, in the book of Matthew, chapter 9, at verse 6. But that you may know that the Son of Man hath power on earth to forgive sins. Then said he unto the sick with the pause to rise. Take up thy head and go into thy house. What well, wonderful thing. The Lord goes, there's no doctor bill to follow. There's no recovery period. You don't have you know, these, these stupid Television. And I, you don't mind me saying stupid here, do you priest? I don't know if you were that other truth or not, but these stupid televisions evangelists are saying, you know, you've got to receive your healing, and then it comes a little bit of a time. Oh What? Oh, <laughs> You never saw anything like that in the Bible. Why? The Lord did it. Never saw anybody where he would say, now listen, you don't, you don't know it, you don't realize it yet, but you really are evil. All you got to do is claim here evil. I heard a fellow tell me the other day, I talked to Scott not. I to claim this evil." Oh, come on. The Bible doesn't talk about stuff like that. The Lord went about doing good. He did it. When they didn't expect it, he didn't do it. When they didn't believe, and he did it When they didn't even know who he was, what he was going to do. Right? Yet, yeah. though he constantly did this, the Bible says he was marred as no man. Right. They beat him, and this—I don't know how to describe this. I don't know that much about it, but I just know that the Bible says that this surpasses all the wickedness that ever taken place, and yet God permitted. Hear what I'm saying. We've gone to the last point. All of this has taken place within the perfect will of God. And yet he's in rebellion to all that is right before God. And yet God permitted it to happen. The, the thought was brought up tonight. Darkness. Ignorance. Why does God permit suffering? And we don't seem to want to understand that. But you see, when we begin to look at why God does these things, usually, if we will just look at our Bible, we'll find that there's a reason for it. Third, because of that, why they're asking the question of asked. This. this must be viewed from the perspective of propitiation. What do I mean by that? When the publican stood and said, God be merciful to me, a sinner. The word mercy seat there is exactly the same, I mean the word merciful there is exactly the same word as the word mercy seat. And it's also exactly the same as another word. When John said he is a propitiation for our sins, not for our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world. The word propitiation is exactly the same Greek word that the Pharisee that the used when he said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Now, I don't understand the plan of salvation in the sense of being able to say, this is the reason why God chose to take away our sins by the offering of His Son. I couldn't tell you that. Perhaps one of these other brethren can, and I, I, I will be listening, I'd like to know it. I must be uh, But I just don't know why God chose to do it that way, but I know He did. And I know that when He decreed to send His Son to the cross of talent, before the world were ever formed, before men had ever been created, before anything that is lost except for God, that God had purposed in His infinite wisdom to take away the sin of the If you were to ask me what the greatest text in all the Bible is, if you were to ask me what the greatest promise in all of the Bible is, if you were to ask me what the greatest promise in all of the Bible is, I expect I would answer to so all three of those Matthew 121. Oh, it's said a lot of ways and other places in the Bible. But this is the greatest promise. This is the greatest prophecy. This is the greatest passage. The greatest truth. Thou shalt call His name Jesus. For He shall save His people from Israel. Ah, so let's just talk about Israel. Come on. Wake up and smell the coffee. He didn't save Israel from their sins. That prophecy would be absolutely unfulfilled. That's what he's talking about. He's talking about His people, His elect He shall save them from their sins. And this is what God was doing from all eternity when He wrote this about. He was saving His people from their sins. Amen. While this is an atrocious thing, humanly speaking, it pleased God. I want you to look, if you would please, at the book of Isaiah, chapter number 53, just verses 10 and 11. Isaiah 53, 10. Yet it pleased the Lord to prove him he hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed." Now I want you to notice something here. I want you to notice the personal pronoun. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin. He, see, both of those are second person pronouns. <laughs> And so that he, obviously, when he says he shall see, I'm sorry, um, I'll find my place in a minute, uh, in about 30 minutes, excuse me. He hath put him to grief, when thou shalt make his soul, God the Father, make the Son's soul, all for sin. he shall see his seed. And I am persuaded that this is talking about the Son seeing his seed. Not the Father. Keep reading there. He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall be in his hand. He shall see the travail of his soul. This is not, in my opinion, is not God the Father seeing the suffering of the Son. It's not what it's talking about. Oh, it's true. But that's not what this is dealing with. And shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify any for he shall bear their name. What does he mean? He should see the baby. Let's think for a moment about a lady. And for nine months she has been rejoicing in that she's one to have a baby. they lady prayed for a baby. Now God has given conception. She's gone through these nine months of that to pass. Her body begins to be very tired and she's exhausted and she's saying, I'll be glad when the day gets here. Oh, when the day gets here, she goes down to the jaws of death and she suffers. A suffering which normally other, no, no other area of her life would ever be parallel to the physical suffering. Then, The doctor comes and tells her, you have a beautiful little baby girl. Or you have a beautiful little baby boy. Meet your daughter. Meet your son. She takes this little baby in her hands and she looks at the travail of her soul. Now that is, that's the metaphor that's being used here. The travail of the soul, this is to me,
1: is what Jesus
0: Christ bore when He bore it all on the cross of Calvary.
1: And you ask that woman, are
0: you satisfied? Do you feel cheated? And she holds that little baby in her arms and she says, oh no, I'm satisfied. I believe with all my heart. That's what the prophet is saying here. He shall see the command of his soul. we have some of these modern theologians that are afraid to offend humanity by teaching a real atonement. They teach an atonement that doesn't save anybody. One German theologian said a couple of decades ago that God would be just as glorified because that, in other words, his theory is that when Jesus Christ was sent to the cross that there he may all men saveable, but he didn't actually save anybody. said, I heard of it." He said, oh, yes, you did. Oh, yes, you did. Every time you hear someone say, I have a missionary, a dear friend of mine, I still support him. God will forgive him and straighten him out when he gets to heaven. He said, I believe there are men in hell that Jesus Christ died for just exactly the same way he died for them. I said, i Oh, that's right. Some years ago, I think you were there, a man preached on evangelism. Just by way of passing, he said, We need to preach election, and we need to preach limited reform. And he did spend on preaching evangelism. He said, But mainly we need to preach to people. We need to realize that people need to be saved. We need to go and take the gospel and Christ. I thought it was a great message. I don't know if Brother Dan was there that year or not. After it was over, a young couple. And his wife were driven about five or six hundred miles to come to the conference came. And they said to me, We want you to know we're leaving, and we want you to know why. We want you to know we're not offended at you. It's a strange thing. They said, We feel the Spirit of God is present in this conference, and we don't want to agree it." I said, Well, if you think the Spirit of God is present, why do you want to leave? I knew it wasn't the earth. And they said, We don't believe what's being preached. I said, what is it you don't believe? He said, that man preached on limited throne. I said, well he didn't preach on it. He just mentioned it. And I said, would you, you folks have a moment to come up and sit down on the And the lady said, May I go to the restroom, I'll be right on up. So we went upstairs. This young man went up And, me. and I said William Do you know what the word tonight means? He said, Yes, reconciliation. Right. One hundred percent right. That's exactly what it means. The Old Testament, this brother here knows Greek or Hebrew, he'll sure tell you that most of the places in the Old Testament, the majority of the places in the Old Testament, the word for atonement is exactly the same word as the word for reconciliation. And then the only place that the word appears in the New Testament that is the word for atonement. It is precisely the same Greek word as the word reconciliation. That's what it means, it means not Now, the German theologian is denying that this atonement is reconciliation. Right. That no one is actually reconciled to God by the death of Christ. All men are made reconcilable. Then, pray tell what reconciles Well, the man I talked to I said, listen friend, did you know that if you believe that, you believe in the middle I said, actually, all Christians do, wouldn't they know or not? If you believe that, you believe it. Now, not what he thought women at was at all. In other words, are all men reconciled to Christ? Is Judas Terry reconciled to Christ? Are men in hell reconciled to Christ? See, I don't think I like that. Well, you see, the only alternative is to say that no one is reconciled to Christ unless they do something to augment the crucifixion of Christ. Unless they finish what was done on the cross of Calvary, my friend, I couldn't understand. The lady came upstairs about that time, and I had said to her husband, do you believe that you will really need the limited She said, well, I certainly don't, sir. And I said, we just sit down, and she sat down very, very nice. She wanted to come And I said, let me ask you something, ma'am. Are you saved? She said, yes, I am. I said, are your sins gone?" She said, yes, they are. I said, how did you get rid of them?" She said, well, I didn't. They're washed away by the of Christ. I said, they're washed away. Your sins are washed away. I, throw and I said, then who washed your sins away? She said, Jesus, when did he do it? When he died on the cross. I said, are Judas's curious sins washed away? Oh, the sins of the people of the hell washed away. And he said, Richard, what are you trying to do? Now I'm not trying to do anything except I'm trying to show you That when Jesus Christ died on the cross, He did something. He did something. Yes, sir. He didn't just throw something out there and say, "There it is, on the supermarket shelf, and I'll make it cheaper than anybody can buy." He did something. He did something for us. He washed our sins away, and we will never, in a million years, understand the crucifixion of Christ rightly until we see it as God washing away our sins. Is Lord. Notice, if you will, open your Bible to the Book of Hebrews, chapter, 10 and look at verse four. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sins. Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, he saith, "Sacrifice and of offering thou hast not; what a body hast thou prepared me? Invert all kinds of sacrifices for sin; thou hast had no pleasure." Then he said, I know I come. In the volume of the book it is written to me. Do you know what that means now? It means from one side of this book to the other. The entirety of the book. That's what it's about. What is the volume about? It's about Jesus Christ. Amen. Some years ago, a young preacher said to me, how do you think the best way to study eschatology? What's the best approach to study eschatology? I said, Don't. He said, What are you talking about? I said, Revelation 19.10 says that the gospel of Christ, the message of Christ, I can't get the right word right now in right? mind, is the spirit of prophecy. Every prophecy in the Bible hinges around the person of Christ in some way, either directly or indirectly. Study Christ. Preach Christ. Think Christ. Search your life looking for Christ. I'll tell you something. That you'll find your eschatology and your ecclesiology and all of these other things falling wonderfully into the right. Around the person of Christ. In the bottom of the book he says it is written of me. Now go ahead and notice what he goes on to say. Above the Sacrifice and offering and burnt offerings and offering for sin thou wouldst not, neither have pleasure therein, which are offered by the law. Then he said, Lo, I come to do thy will, God. He taketh away the first that he may establish the second. By the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Amen. This for all does not have anything to do with the number of people that become ascended. In other words, it is in, it's in opposition to or a counterpart to this idea that the priest did it over and over. We say, I want to settle this once and for all. We're going to take care of this thing once and for all. And that's what that said. Yeah. Once and for all, he, by the offering of his body, took away the sins, and the sins that were not taken away, then shall never be taken away. The sins that were not taken. The cross the calvary. He took away our sins. Now I want you to go with that thought in your mind to the book of John, Gospel, of John chapter number six, verse thirty-seven, for the last period. Notice what he said. I came to do new will, O God. John six thirty-seven says, "All oh, the Father giveth me come unto me, and he that cometh unto thee. out of the waters of out. For I came down from heaven not to do my own will." Remember what the preacher said tonight. We. Thou to the will of God, and we pray. He's, talking, he's exactly on the line, right on the main Praying in the name of Jesus Christ is not getting through with your little recital saying, We ask these things in Jesus' name. pray in the spirit to Him, not my will, but thine will God. Amen. He said, I came down to heaven to do the Father's will. What is the will of the Father? Remember Hebrews 10? I come to do thy will, oh, I come to do thy will, oh God. Here again he says, I came down from heaven not to do my own will, but to of him that sent me. And this is the Father's will which has sent me. All which is given me, I shall lose nothing, but raise it up again for the last day. The strongest person all in all of the Bible in terms of security, right there, Johnson said. can't use it if you don't believe in election. Well, I guarantee you the strongest person all in all of the Bible in terms of security. Because he says there, that if I be the of God, I must raise up the last day. Everyone, he's going to be. He's not talking about raising them up and go ahead. I'm not talking about that at all. He's talking about saving. He's talking about them coming to Him, and saving. saved. The verse teaches falling from grace. He says, well, you know, certainly he won't lose them, but you know, you can walk away. You know what I mean? Nobody can fucking out of the Father's hand, but you can jump out. He says, no, I must raise it up at the last day. If he is to do the will of God, he says, Almost, those that God has given me, I must raise them up to the last day. Amen. Right. Oh, my friend, the only way that they can ever be raised up on the last day would be that their sins are washed away the of Christ. Otherwise, otherwise they would be raised to the resurrection of our nation, not through the resurrection of life. So on the cross of Calvary, my friend, we find that this atrocity as far as we can see, this atrocity, as far as men are responsible, was a great work of God in which he lifted up his son on Calvary's cross. whosoever believed on him should not perish, but have a I ask you tonight, in closing, what is your hope in heaven? Is it what Christ did on the cross of Calvary, plus your church membership? Is it what Christ did on the cross of Calvary Not your baptism? Bible But you see, if you have hope in adding anything to the work of Christ on the cross of Calvary, my dear friend, you don't have that hope at all. Right. You don't add anything to the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Even the faith by which we receive it is a gift of God. And that faith does not place itself upon the faith. It may today people who are taught to have it. In your faith. Confidence is not in our faith. Our faith is not in our faith. Their faith is in what Christ did on the cross. Yeah. What is the hope of yourself? Is it what Christ did upon the cross was what you did upon your knees? God forbid. you. When you look at your hope of faith, you see that there's anything else there, religion. Amen. If you from sin, are longing to be free. Look to the Lamb of God. Amen. He to the you died on Calvary. To look to the Lamb of God. That's what the cross is about. And my dear friend, once in were he earth, it will And when he died on the cross, that there he redeemed the multitude that no man can know. And that those who one day be in heaven singing hallelujah. For Hallelujah for the cross! The Lamb Word! Then, my dear friend, we'll understand it as we cannot possibly understand it Amen. But as of right now, I'm so glad. I'm so glad that God sent His only begotten Son into the world to die the wicked, filthy, violent sinners. Amen. I'm so glad that God saw him. to let Him be humiliated. And let him be mercy. And let him suffer. As no other man has suffer. And let him die at the hand of wickedness.